Well, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Uh, like I said before, my name is Dane Miotov. I'm the student pastor here. And uh, it's just my, my joy and uh, my privilege to get to be able to preach uh, the word for us, for us this morning. So uh, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5, says this. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free." Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's go ahead and pray. Well, Father, I uh, first off just thank you for your word uh, that you've given to us, Father, a sure foundation, uh, that in days in which... uh, we experience things that we'd rather not experience, whether it's good days or whether it's difficult days, Father, uh, whether we feel like there's a whole lot of hope in our lives or we're struggling to see an ounce of it. Uh, Father, we have your word, we have who you have declared yourself to be, uh, and that is a sure foundation in our life. Uh, the words and the guidance you speak to us, Father, is, is the pathway to joy, and so, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see beautiful things in your word, that you would incline our hearts to your commands and not to our own selfish desires and selfish wants. And I pray that you would do this uh, by filling us with your spirit uh, for your glory and for our good. Uh, and if you would, I just invite you, uh, take a couple seconds and just pray for yourself. Pray that uh, God would teach you something this morning. And if you could, pray for me. Uh, I'm I'm excited about this text, but I want it to be helpful. I want it to be clear. Well, Father, we love you and uh, we trust you. Please use this time. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, uh, when I was a high school school student, uh, the primary summer job I had growing up was as a lifeguard. Uh, I swam competitively for five years, uh, and so uh, lifeguarding was kind of just a natural uh, transition summer job that I enjoyed having. And uh, most of the time, uh, it was a great time. I really enjoyed that kind of work, but as with any job, uh, there's always those days that you experience, you're just like, this is a miserable day, like I'd, I'd just not be here today. And one such day like that, I was lifeguarding at the top of this water slide, this kind of small water park that we had in my hometown. And uh, I was in charge of just measuring kids as they were coming up the stairs to make sure they were tall enough so that when they went down the slide and hit the catch pool, they could still stand up if they couldn't swim. So I was in charge of measuring these kids. And as I'm standing there on the top of the slide, we had this little kid come up, and I'm looking at him. I was like, I really don't think you're tall enough, son. Um, But he comes up to me. I measure him, and sure enough, he's like three inches too short. So I pull him aside. I was like, hey, man, I'm really sorry, uh, but you're just not tall enough for this slide uh, just yet. And he was really upset, but he kind of turned around and went down the stairs, and I didn't really think anything of it. About five minutes later, I get rotated, and I go down into the catch pool, uh, and just kind of lifeguarding down the catch pool in the water, helping people get out of the water as they come down the slide. 
And uh, I'm sitting there, and about five minutes into my rotation, a lady comes down the slide, and she swims on over to me. She stands up, crosses her arms, and looks at me in the face, and she says, Excuse me, are you the lifeguard that wouldn't let my son go down the slide? And I was kind of put back a little bit, and I was like, well, ma'am, I'm, I'm very sorry. If I didn't let your son go down the slide, it was just because he wasn't tall enough. I'm thinking, like, that was a pretty good response. Like, that was very respectful. And she looks at me, crosses her arms, and says, no, he's plenty tall enough. I'm so sick of you lifeguards that feel as though you need to, you need to be, like, beat down little kids and make them feel terrible just so you feel good about yourselves and feel as though you have a whole lot of power and control in your lives. And I'm just like, um. And she looks at me and continues, and she's like, where's your manager? I'm going to get you fired today. I was like, all right. Um, well, my manager's right over there. You can go talk to him. And, uh, and sure enough, she did. The funny thing is, I went and talked to my manager at the end of the day, and I said, hey, man, what was up with that, that lady? And he looks at me, and he's like, man, she was just upset you wouldn't let her son go down the slide. And I said, uh, I was like, well, I measured him. He's like three inches too short. And uh, my manager looks at me, and he's like, yeah, actually, those measuring sticks are kind of like three inches too tall. I think we need to fix those. I was like, oh, <laughs> well, that information would have been more useful to me at the beginning of the day. But... Uh, why do, I, why do I tell you that story uh, this morning? I tell you that story for this reason. All of us, regardless of the job that you're in, uh, we've all had days uh, that we felt as though at our places of work we were mistreated uh, or wrongfully accused of something or unreasonable expectations were put on us, uh, whether it was from a coworker or even whether it was from an employer, a boss. We've all had those days in which we just feel as though we weren't treated with just common decency. And my question for you this morning is, as a Christian, as someone who's meant to imitate Christ and show Christ in your workplace, how do you handle that? How do you navigate those situations in which you feel as though you're just unfairly treated and no one is doing anything about it? And that's what I want to talk about today. Because, you see, typically, whenever we experience those times at work, our response in that moment is to simply work with bitterness and resentment about it. Is that when we're in that place of work and we're just not treated with just common decency, our response is typically to work with bitterness and resentment. And the problem with that is that Paul commands the exact opposite of us in Scripture. You see, first off, Paul kind of commands three things in this topic, but the first thing he commands is this. He says in Ephesians 6, 5, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. With a sincere heart. And we're going to talk about that a little more in a second, but what I want to do right now really quick is I want to give a, a quick background of Ephesians because I think it's important to understand what has Paul talked about before he's gotten to this point. And so the book of Ephesians, if you're unfamiliar, uh, the book of Ephesians was written by Paul to believers in the town of Ephesus. And Ephesus, if you want to think about it like this, Ephesus was the epicenter for the worship of Greek and Roman gods. It was just the epicenter for that idol worship. And Paul, in Acts chapter 19, goes to Ephesus, does ministry there for about two years. He leaves... 
And then as he goes to Rome and gets imprisoned in Rome, he writes his letter to the Ephesians, in, uh, the believers in the town of Ephesus. He writes the book of Ephesians while he's in prison in Rome. And that's what we have with us today. That's what we're reading from today. And the letter to the Ephesians is interesting because it's, it's incredibly just clearly structured. This is what I mean by that. Ephesians is six chapters long, and the whole first half of it, chapters 1, 2, and 3, the whole first half of the book of Ephesians is just the gospel. There's not a single imperative, a single command in the whole first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Paul is just laying out to the believers in Ephesus and saying, hey, this is the gospel. This is what God has done in your heart. This is the miracle that he's done. This is where he's brought you from. This is what he's doing in you, and not only in you, but in believers all over the world, that he is gathering together a people group from every tribe, tongue, nation, dialect, everywhere, bringing everybody together as one new family, united under Christ as the head of the church. The whole first half of Ephesians is just laying out the gospel. And then in chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, chapter 4 starts off with this preposition of therefore, uh, as a result. And what Paul is saying is he's saying in light of the gospel, because of the gospel, because of that, as a result, it should affect these specific areas of your life. And so in chapter 4, he lays out and says, hey, because you are all believers, because God has brought you all together as one family, you as a church are meant to pursue unity with one another. Is that your primary pursuit should be to pursue unity with one another. Now, unity doesn't equal uniformity. He says that all of you are diverse. You all have different skills and passions and gifts, and that's awesome. You were given that by God. You were meant to use those things to build one another up in love as a unified body of believers. But the, your goal is to pursue unity with one another. And that's Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 5, he starts getting into, okay, well, this is what it looks like in your family dynamics. Uh, this is what your relationship with your spouse, because of the gospel, because of what God has done in your life, this is what your relationship with your spouse is supposed to look like. Uh, because of the gospel, this is what your relationship with your kids are supposed to look like. This is what your parenting should look like. And that's in Ephesians chapter 5. And now we get to Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul is talking about uh, this other uh, relationship in society, uh, bond servants and masters. Now, before we go any, any further on this, every single time this text, this is my experience, that this text gets brought up, the question always comes, why did Paul just say nothing about the abolition of slavery? Like, like, why does Paul just seem to not even address this, this wickedness of slavery and, and seek the abolition of it, seek the cessation of it? Why did Paul just not say anything about it? And uh, as Christians, whenever we hear that question, usually our first response is, well, slavery back in Paul's day was different than the slavery that we're familiar with in the past 300 years. And there's some truth to that. There, there's some truth to that. 
Uh, back in Paul's day, uh, servants, slaves, uh, people could sell themselves into slavery uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, sometimes people were brought into slavery because of military conquest. That definitely did happen. Uh, but primarily, slavery in Paul's day had nothing to do with skin color. Had nothing to do with skin color. You see, primarily Paul's day, slavery had to do with a financial issue. It was a financial issue. People would sell themselves into servitude or be sold into servitude because of their financial situation. Sometimes people would even sell themselves into servitude because it meant that they could get better training for a specific trade that they wanted to, they wanted to develop themselves in. Uh, they could actually sell themselves into servitude in order to get greater education than what they would have otherwise been able to get. Uh, we have documentation even of people selling themselves into servitude in order to pursue Roman citizenship, which was an extremely coveted, uh, coveted status. And so there definitely were differences with, Paul's, with slavery in Paul's day than there were in, in what we're familiar with in the past three, 400 years. But here's the thing. Even though there were differences, there was still one massive similarity there was still one massive similarity. And that similarity was this, is that regardless of what time frame you're looking at, there was still rampant mistreatment. There was still rampant mistreatment of slaves by their masters, of of bond servants by their owners. There was still massive, massive mistreatment. And so that still just kind of begs the question, okay, well, if there was still massive mistreatment, well, then why didn't Paul say anything? Like, why didn't he seek to, to get rid of that whole institution? Because it is a wicked institution. Why did Paul not say anything? And the reason that Paul didn't say anything, all the, all the studying and the preparation that I did uh, for this, the reason that Paul didn't say anything is, is this. That Paul was commissioned by God to spread a message to the nations. To spread a message to the nations. This message was different than any other message that had been spread before because this message had power to it. That you read in Romans 1.16, this message had the power to change a human heart. Had the power to create new affections inside of somebody, new desires. Had the power to bring back into relationship God and his people. Had the power to bring new life. And Paul's task given to him by Christ was to take this message and tell it to everyone. Because at the heart of Christianity, Christians don't believe that societies are changed by programs or institutions. We don't believe that. We don't believe that humanity can be fixed by just a better form of democracy. We don't believe that. That's not biblical. See, at the heart of it, Christians believe that societies are transformed only when individuals within societies are transformed. That societies are transformed when individuals are transformed. Transformed individuals transform societies. And this is what we see all throughout history. 
uh, whether it was with Martin Luther, uh, whether it was Martin Luther King Jr. or Abraham Lincoln before him or William Wilberforce, men who had been transformed on the inside by the message of the gospel, and then they saw injustices occurring in their society, and they took every single ounce of power and influence that they had and leveraged it to try to get rid of the injustice. And that's exactly what Christians are to do. That Christianity believes that societies are influenced, societies are transformed by transformed individuals. And so Paul writes to these bondservants saying, Bondservants, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. And that word sincere uh, means free of deceit, free of hypocrisy, uh, free of falseness. The word literally means free of cracks. Sincere, free of cracks, without cracks. And it basically means this idea of, of you are who you say you are, you do what you say you're going to do. When I, was a, when I was a lifeguard at this, uh, this water park in my hometown, uh, one of the problems we'd have is we would have lifeguards that would especially guard up on that slide, and whether it was because they wanted to be seen as the cool lifeguard or whether it was because they just wanted to avoid drama with parents or upset patrons, uh, they wouldn't enforce the rules. Like some kid who's like five inches too short, they would just look at him like, yeah, go ahead, man, you're fine. And that would create a problem because then they would get rotated. You'd have some other lifeguard come in who actually did enforce the rules. And then that same kid would come up the slide wanting to go down because he'd been let down the past 15 minutes. And then not be able to go down because this lifeguard was going to actually enforce the rules. I don't know how many of you parents have ever experienced that with your kid. But we saw it quite a bit. And it's because we had lifeguards on our team that were not working with sincerity. They were working with cracks in how they enforced the rules. They were working deceitfully, so to speak. They were working hypocritically because they were saying that they were lifeguards. They were saying that they were people who were carrying out this position, but at the end of the day, they weren't. And Paul says, when you work, you are, into, you are meant to work with sincerity. Paul is saying that you, in your place of work, have been hired, have been tasked to do a job. You don't have the luxury of just deciding what part of the job you're going to do and what part you're not going to do is that you've been hired by somebody else, and so therefore your job is to carry out their will and their desires in that place of work. It was like whenever I got chewed out by that lady in the catch pool, like, I didn't have the freedom to just kind of tell her what I wanted to tell her. Because our managers had told us and had trained us in saying, hey, regardless of how you're treated, you need to always respond with kindness, with decency, with respect, and then if you have issues with people, you just let us take care of that. And so I didn't have the freedom to just kind of work this job however I wanted to work it. Because I was working for somebody, and I had to work with sincerity, without cracks. Paul says, as a Christian, in your place of work, you are meant to work with sincerity. You are meant to do what you say you're going to do. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul goes on, and he says that even when you're working in a situation with someone who doesn't treat you with common decency, you do not merely work, in Ephesians 6, 6, you do not merely work by the way of eye service as people pleasers. And what he's saying here is he's trying to draw up the idea 
that your quality of work should not be such as you're just trying to get everybody else to see your work and be like, yeah, that's, that's about right, that's good, just kind of right on par. Paul is saying when you work at your job, you are meant to go above and beyond what you were called to do. Your quality of work should be so good, so superior, that literally it kind of just puts everybody else's to shame. Like Christians should work with that level of excellence, with that quality of work. Not just doing the minimum required, but should go, should go above and beyond what's asked of them. When I lifeguard this pool, we'd have days where... Um, it would be rainy and cloudy and just kind of miserable all around. Uh, but it was kind of a running joke because even on the days in which it was cloudy and rainy and miserable, we would still have kids show up wanting to swim, which was just horrible for us lifeguards because we had to go stand out there in the rain and the sleet and the chilly weather and just guard the pool. And our temptation in that moment would be to just not open up every single area of the pool. Just kind of leave certain areas closed and just kind of work off kind of a skeleton crew, so to speak. But, but that right there would not be working above and beyond. It would not be seeking to put forth the best quality of product that we, that we, that we possibly could. It would be working just in a way that everybody around us would see as, eh, it's, it's acceptable. But that's not what Paul calls us to. He calls us to a quality of work that far exceeds what we're called, what we, what we, or it's what's communicated to us. And the problem with that is that it's easier to do whenever you're in a really super healthy, fun work environment, right? But when you feel as though you're disrespected at work, uh, you're, you're given unreasonable expectations, you're just not treated with that common decency, Instead of wanting to go above and beyond, what tends to happen is that we work with that bitterness and that resentment towards that person that's hurt us. And whenever we have that bitterness and that resentment that just festers inside of us, like, I don't want to put forth the best quality of work that I can. Like, I just want to do the minimum amount of required, and then I just want to go home. I just want to get out of this environment. I just want to avoid it because I'm so frustrated at what's going on here in my place of work. And the, and the real punch in the gut is in verse 7, where Paul says, you are to render service with a good will. And that phrase, good will, literally means free of resentment. Free of resentment. That when you are in that, that place of work, that place of business, even when you are mistreated, even when you are not treated with common decency, Paul says, you are not to have resentment or bitterness in your heart at all. That, that's not supposed to be there. But the problem is, is that when we're passed up for promotion, when unreasonable expectations are placed on us, when we're disrespected, when we're treated unfairly, we feel nothing but resentment. Like we feel nothing but bitterness. It just festers inside of us. And why is that? Like, why does that feeling come up? Well, it's pretty simple, and Paul addresses it. But the simple truth, the reason why we feel that bitterness and that resentment when we're mistreated is because we want justice. Like, we want justice. If you're taking notes, this is the second point. And Paul acknowledges this, that we want justice. There's a desire for justice inside of our heart. In verse 9, the second half of verse 9, 
Paul says that there is no partiality with Christ. There is no partiality with Christ. That word partiality literally means receiving a face. Like receiving a face is what it means, uh, partiality. And what Paul's getting at there is this idea that you are judged purely on your external appearance. That people are judged purely on the externals. And Paul looks at that and he says, there is none of that with Christ. That Christ looks at the heart. Because to purely judge by the externals, we know this, is a complete injustice. There's nothing right about that. And so when Paul brings up this idea of there is no partiality with Christ, he's appealing to this deep down desire for justice inside of us. That when we're at that place of work, when we're treated unfairly, that bitterness and that resentment comes, it's because we feel as though we have been wronged, and probably rightfully so, and we start thinking in our minds, like, I am never going to get justice on this. The person who wronged me isn't going uh, isn't, isn't, isn't to be punished for this. Like, that's not going to get corrected. Like, I'm not going to get the justice that I want. And so that just fuels the bitterness and the resentment more and more and more, and the frustration and the anger grows, and Paul acknowledges this. The reason we get bitter is because we want justice. When that lady chewed me out in the catch pool, um, I got frustrated because like, I wanted to tell her what I wanted to tell her. Like, I wanted her to hear the words that I had to say. I wanted her to know, like, you don't know my heart. You don't know my motivations. You have no idea why I did what I did. How dare you? Because I wanted justice. I wanted to be justified. I wanted to be shown that I am not in the wrong here. In fact, you are in the wrong here by accusing me falsely. Like, that's what I wanted because it was that desire for justice. But then what do you do when you don't get that? What do you do when you're at that place of work, you're wrongfully accused of something, you're mistreated, and you don't get justice? How do you continue to work above and beyond what you're called to, with a sincere heart, without harboring bitterness and resentment? How do you do that? And Paul says the solution to that problem lies in the size and the justice of your God. He says the solution to that problem lies in the size and the justice of your God. This is the underlying principle of what Paul is writing here in this this section of text. In verse 8 he says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this... He will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And that participle knowing is is grammatically connected to the verb obey in verse 6. And so Paul is saying to bondservants in this letter, he's saying, obey your masters with fear and trembling. Why, Paul? Because you know something. Because there's something that you know to be true. And the thing that you know is this. You know that the person you were working for has been put in that position by Christ himself. So that as you are working for that person, you are actually working for Christ. He says, you know this to be true. And the second thing you know is that ultimately Christ sees everything that goes on in that place of business. That there is not one thing that he does not see. 
He says, obey your masters with fear and trembling. Why, Paul? Because you're not working for them. You're working for Christ. And he sees everything, and he will reward everyone according to the work that he or she has done. That's Paul's argument here. Paul says the same thing to the masters in verse 9, where he says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. When the Christian works at his or her job, they do so knowing those two Things That one, they are working for Christ because Christ is the one who's put that person in positions of leadership over them. And then number two, that Christ sees everything and will reward or punish every single act that's been done. When the Christian works at his or her place of business, they work knowing those two things. And we can become so bitter and so resentful whenever we're mistreated at work because we think in our minds, I am never going to get justice. I'm never going to be justified. I'm never going to be shown to be in the right and that other person be in the wrong. And that just turns into anger and frustration inside of us because we don't think we're going to get justice. And Paul says that that is not the case. That that is never the case for the Christian. Now it's true, you may not get justice on this side of eternity, but there will never be a situation when Christ comes back that perfect justice is not enacted. There will be nothing that Christ has not seen and witnessed himself that he does not either reward or punish as a result of what took place Injustice will not remain when Christ comes back. Everyone will receive the justice that is due them. And so you may experience injustice now and today, but you experiencing it knowing that it's not the end of the story. You experience it knowing that it's not the end of the story because as you work for that person in that place of business, you are not actually working for a human being. You are working for the God of the universe and he sees everything that goes on. He sees and acknowledges everything that goes on. And so therefore, this morning, you really kind of have two questions you have to ask yourself. Like if this is Paul's argument, if this is the point that he's making, it means that we really have two questions that we have to ask ourselves. And the first question is this, is your God that big? Is your God that big? Is your God the God who puts just all authority in place? Is your God the God who, who sees every single thing that occurs, not even just at your place of business, but every single place of business, every single situation, whether it's in the United States or Canada or Mexico or Africa or Europe or China, it doesn't matter where it is, is your God that big to see every single thing that occurs? Is your God big enough to bring reward and punishment for Every single deed, every single thought, every single word spoken. Is your God that big? That's the first question you have to ask yourself. But the second question you have to ask yourself, and and, and as I was first studying this and and mulling this over myself, this is probably the uh, the more convicting one for me, was is his justice enough for you? Is his justice enough for you? 
because we tend to allow ourselves to, we experience injustice, and then the way we usually handle it is that it either affects kind of our quality of work, and we just kind of put forth kind of a, a, an on-par level quality of work instead of going above and beyond, or I think what's more common is we kind of just get frustrated and internalize that resentment, that bitterness, and then we just kind of go talk to a friend about that person, that coworker, that employer who did this or that or said this or that that frustrated us and that was wrong. And so we just kind of talk about them behind their backs instead of following what Paul is calling us to do. And we can tend to do all that because we're trying to pursue our own sense of justice. We think to ourselves, like, I can talk about this person. It's not a big deal. And sometimes we'll say, well, I'm just venting. Yeah. But we do it because we want justice. And so we think to ourselves, it's okay for me to talk this way because I want justice. They deserve to be talked this way. This picture of them deserves to be portrayed to everybody else in the work, in the, uh, workplace that I'm at, or at least to my friends. They deserve it because they've wronged me. And we make the mistake of trying to pursue our own justice, and the whole time we walk exactly opposite the way that God calls us to walk. When he says, even in times when you are mistreated or not treated with common decency or something frustrates you at your place of work or you don't feel like there's fair, fairness and equality going on, even in those times you are meant to work above and beyond what's required of you with sincerity in your heart and not with bitterness or frustration or anger or resentment because you know something to be true you know that ultimately you work for Christ, and secondly, that he sees everything and will enact perfect justice when he comes. Now, quick side note, this doesn't mean that we don't pursue justice ourselves by legal and moral means when we're able. Uh, Christians, even throughout history, should be the first ones to speak out against inequality in our system. We should be the first ones to stand up and declare that this is not Right, that was one of the main issues that the prophets had with the kings in Israel and in Judah. And you read about that in Amos, you read about that in Isaiah, of how these leaders were not, not addressing situations of injustice, and God hates that. So we are to pursue justice by legal and moral means when we can, but the situation still exists that there will be times when you will not get it. And in those times, you have to ask yourself, is your God that big? And is his justice enough for you? Is his justice enough for you? Because just think about this. Who could enact more perfect justice than the one who wrote the very laws of justice? Than the one who gave justice its very definition? The one who put the desire in your heart for it. The one who created you with a desire to pursue justice, to, to recognize inequality, to recognize fairness and unfairness. The one who put that inside of you. Who could enact more perfect justice than him? But there will be times when we don't get justice on this side of eternity. And when that's the case, you have to ask yourself, is his justice enough? Is his justice enough for you to live the rest of your life experiencing injustice, knowing that he will bring perfect justice? Is that justice enough? Because Paul says that for the Christian, 
it's more than enough. It's more than enough. As we work at our place of business and as we're disrespected or mistreated in ways, we're not to harbor bitterness or resentment. We're meant to work above and beyond what's required of us. Working with a sincere heart, doing what we say we're going to do. And because of that, because God has said, you don't work for a human being in your place of business, you work for me, and I see everything, and I will bring perfect justice. Because of that, we are called to seek the welfare of our employer, to seek the welfare of your employer. This is Paul's exhortation to us in in verse 7 when he says, Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Paul's point here is that because you serve a God who controls all authority, and because you serve a God who ultimately bears the responsibility of enacting justice, perfect justice, because of that you are called then to seek the welfare of the person you work for to seek their flourishing, to seek their encouragement. And so this week, what I want to invite you to do as a way to apply this uh, to your life, this is just one way, there's tons of ways to do it, but as a way to apply this text, what I want to encourage you all to, invite you all to this week, is to think of somebody at work uh, who, you, who you either work alongside or even the person you work with. And especially the person you work with, and just writing them a letter, just thanking them for their willingness to be in the position that they're in. You don't have to say anything about their quality of work uh, or what you think about it, but just writing them a letter, thanking them for their willingness to be in that position of leadership. Because if you've ever been in a position of leadership, you know that leadership can actually be pretty lonely. And, and more often than not, when you're in that position, you tend to naturally think the worst about how you're doing rather than the best. And so this week, I want to invite you all to write a letter to your employer. Just thanking them for their willingness to be in that position of leadership. Students, as you all are uh, graduated and finished up, writing a letter to your teacher and just thanking them for their willingness to be in that position. And you don't have to say anything about how you think they taught, but just thanking them for their willingness to be there and to give their time to do that job. We want to seek the welfare of our employer. Because when we do that, when we work with this kind of mindset, we gain a better justice. We gain a better justice. And this is Paul's argument in Ephesians 6, verse 8. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. The definition of justice is, is correct reward and correct punishment. Correct reward and correct punishment. And here Paul is emphasizing the the reward aspect of it. That every single person will be rewarded in accordance with how they worked at that job. And uh, 
It's the last story I kind of want to want to share for this morning, but it was interesting as I was thinking through this. I think a lot of times when we think about God's rewards to us, um, if you're like me growing up, I tend to think about it as kind of like, like getting a sweater from grandma on Christmas. Um, it's kind of like, oh, that's sweet, thank you, and you kind of put forth this fake smile so that she's not hurt, but really, deep down in your heart, you'd rather just get a gift card. And uh, I would think about that, and, and I would transfer that over to, to God's rewards. Like when God says, hey, I'm going to reward you at the end, it's kind of just like, thanks, appreciate that. This doesn't really fix my problem right here now. But it was interesting, my, uh, my older sister uh, passed away a couple years ago, and uh, my parents and I were talking to her, uh, her husband. He was talking to us about the difficulty that he was having in, in kind of grieving her loss, I mean, we all were. Um, but he was saying specifically what was difficult for him uh, was uh, to envision just where she was right now. I mean, she was a believer, she was with Christ, um, but, uh, but this idea of like in heaven, like, it was just like, he's like, I, 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 don't, I don't know. And, um, and so he was just having a hard time wrapping his mind around the idea of, of being with, with Christ. And, uh, and he was talking to us about this. And then he told us something that's been helpful for him. He said this. He said he knew that my sister's favorite place in the whole world uh, to visit was Hawaii. Uh, she loved going to Hawaii because she just loved the beach. Uh, she loved walking up and down the beach. She would collect seashells. Um, and that just, there was no place on earth that brought her kind of more joy to be in than on a beach in, in Hawaii. And so he was telling us, as he was uh, thinking through, you know, her being with Christ, he said, you know what, I just kind of started thinking about her uh, being with Christ in Hawaii. Like, all right. Which is theologically probably not the case. But that wasn't even the point that he was making. The point that he was making was this. Sage is either in one of two places. She's either in some form of Hawaii with Jesus, picking up seashells. Again, probably not the case. Or she's somewhere with him that just absolutely blows Hawaii out of the water. And, uh, and I had talked to college students about this whenever I was at SMU. This idea of God's rewards. I, I, would just, I would just say, hey, think about the best reward that you can possibly imagine. I don't care if it's materialistic. It could be a Ferrari or whatever you want it to be. It doesn't matter. It could be materialistic. Just think about the best reward you feel like you could get from Christ. Think about that. And then recognize that the reward that you will get will absolutely blow that away. That it won't even be able to hold a candle to what Christ has in store for those who love him and those who follow him. The idea of a, of a Christian standing before Christ after his or her life, receiving rewards from him, and literally having the attitude of, well, this is nice, but I mean, I kind of would have preferred something else. Like, that's an impossibility. It won't happen. Nobody ever gets shafted in the kingdom of God. Literally. There is nothing that you can think of that, that, you, that you, 
you'll get it and you'll feel as though you wanted something else. Paul says this to us in 1 Corinthians 2, 9. He says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And so as you find yourself in your place of work, whether you feel like it's been a good day or you feel like you're experiencing uh, just injustice or mistreatment or just you're being wrongfully treated in some way, just not treated with common decency, whether it's by a coworker or by your employer, you fight that bitterness, you fight that anger, you fight that resentment with the fact that you know something to be true, that you are not working for a human being, you are working for the creator of the universe who has put all authority in place and ultimately sees everything and rewards and punishes every act, whether just or unjust, he sees it all, rewards it all. You fight that bitterness and that resentment with it And when you go into it with that mindset, seeking the welfare, the encouragement of those you work with, of your employer, seeking to create just little pockets of heaven where it is that you work, you seek a better justice. You seek something that's better. And that's what I want for all of us. Let's pray. Father, I uh, thank you for for your word, again, that you speak to us what's true. Uh, And that your word has power. As Paul said to the Romans, that they would be transformed by the renewing of their minds. Father, I pray that your word would cut through joints and marrow, would change us, Father, would transform us, would grow our affections for you, God, that as we find ourselves in our places of work this week, God, that we would fight bitterness and resentment with your word, knowing that Ultimately, we work for you, knowing that ultimately you see everything that occurs, God, and that your justice would be, a, would be enough for us. That your justice would be enough for us. Father, please do this inside of us for your glory and for our good. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.